Welcome to the BioCurious Podcast with your host, Kayla Osterhoff. As a health scientist, biohacker, and generally curious person, I'm always looking for new ways to optimize and integrate mind, body, and spiritual health. I created this podcast to explore the magic and science of human biology and expand your consciousness through learning. If you enjoy the episode that you're about to hear, please leave a review and share it with someone who can benefit from the information. Now let's get curious. Hello again, Marissa here with the BioCurious podcast team. This week's episode features Dr. Austin Perlmutter, a New York Times bestselling author and physician with a focus in helping others improve decision-making and quality of life. This episode dives deep into the brain versus the mind and how we can train ourselves to make better decisions. Austin and Kayla talk about the importance of taking control of your health and why you should start taking a proactive approach. The end of this episode features a live audience Q&A. If you would like to listen to an episode live, download the Clubhouse app and follow Kayla. I hope you liked this episode and learned something new. Dr. Austin Perlmutter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, Kayla, thanks for having me. Uh, I think it's, it's kind of exciting and a little bit anxiety provoking to realize <laughs> that unlike most podcasts, we're doing this live. Yes, we're all about it. <laughs> so for those who are not familiar with Dr. Austin Perlmutter, he is an internal medicine medical doctor who specializes in brain health and mental health. He is also a New York Times bestselling author of the book called Brainwash. If you haven't read it, be sure to check that out. It is a great resource. And he co-authored that book with his father, who you might be familiar with, Dr. David Perlmutter. And he is joining us here today to teach us a little bit about taking control of your brain health for better overall health. So I am so excited for this conversation. The brain and the mind are two things that I am very nerdy about as well, so I can't wait to dive in. But before we get into all the juicy topics, Austin, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you've shifted from internal medicine to now focusing mostly on brain and mental health? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think like anyone, I'm looking for frameworks that make sense to me. And I'm looking for the things that are more important to me as far as, uh, you know, my own physical mental health and my own relationships, and then looking at how I can take that information and, and make it available to other people. And I just happen to be in the scientific space. So what I have done is look into the, the research around physical, mental health that I went into internal medicine because I saw, again, that I, I wanted to try to help people with a certain problem. Again, I don't think that's super unique to me, but the problem that I saw was chronic diseases. And there seems to be a pretty straightforward solution to so many of our chronic diseases today that so many of them, things like heart disease, diabetes, stroke, even certain forms of dementia, even certain forms of mental illness can be prevented uh, if we just do the basic stuff, right? So exercise, eating healthy, stress reduction techniques, relationships. I thought if I got the tools through my internal medicine training, through conventional medical training, then I would be changing lives. I would be preventing diseases. And what I found was really that I became skilled in acute care management, especially in the hospital. People came in with pneumonia, heart failure, et cetera. I knew what to do with these drugs to help mitigate those symptoms. But what I wasn't doing in all of this was being efficacious in my prevention. Because when I saw people in the clinic and I told them, hey, you know, you have prediabetes or you have prehypertension or, hey, you know, your weight is a little bit higher up. Are you interested in weight loss? And people were. People would tell me, I want to improve my blood sugar, my blood pressure. I want to lower my weight. Despite this, we weren't able to make it happen. We weren't able to bridge that gap between what we say we care about and what we actually do. And so that led me uh, down a, a multi-year course, 
which included this book I wrote with my dad, Brainwash, where I've spent so much time trying to better understand the problem. The problem is that what we do in the moment doesn't align with what we want for our future. And I feel in my biased way that this underlies so much of what is actually going wrong right now, because we tend to look at these downstream outcomes like blood sugar or blood pressure, heart function, when the reality is it's the state of our brain that is going to lead us to these long-term variables of interest. Uh, it's the way that we make choices that is going to influence our blood sugar, our blood pressure. And what I think is really important to understand is as much as there's a focus on prevention in education, telling people about what they need to eat, how they need to exercise, that we kind of know the basics, this idea that if people have the right information, they'll make the right choice, but it's clearly not the case. And again, for the last couple of years, my goal has been an understanding where that collapses, where in the brain things go wrong, and what we can do to better understand how to wire our brains to start making choices that are in sync with our future goals. Mm, I love this and I cannot wait to dive into that more. Um, this is actually the reason why I personally got into the field of neuropsychophysiology is to really understand the underlying mechanisms of behavior, right? So when I studied for my master's in public health and when I worked for the Centers for Disease Control, it was all about behavioral health. But a huge aspect that was missing in my understanding and my personal education and experience in the field was this understanding of the brain and the mind. And this is something that I love to teach about and something that I love to help people visualize. So I was curious from you, from your perspective, how do you explain to folks the difference between the brain, the physical brain, and the mind, which is something you can't see, but it is also very real, um, and the how the two interact? Well, this is a great question. And Kayla, I'm probably going to shoot this back to you because the way that I tend to look at this is I understand what the brain is. I can see the brain. I've seen, I've held a brain in my hands. I've seen it on imaging. And I can understand the studies that look at neurotransmitters, that look at neurons, um, that look at connectivity between the neurons. But the mind seems to be, again, in my perspective, uh, more of a human construct. It's an organizational construct that helps us to explain things that don't necessarily fall neatly into an anatomical or a neuroscientific framework. So when people ask me this question about what the mind is, I, I don't necessarily have some sort of a solid answer because my work has tended towards understanding things from a more molecular and neuroscientific pathway and not so much from um, some of the psychological pieces that are engaged in the idea of the mind. So my answer there is the mind is a, a human construct that helps us to organize things that seem a bit outside the realm of what we can uh, explain through neuroscience. But I would love to hear your take on it. I think you probably have far more expertise in that concept than I do. I thank you so much for explaining that in your perspective. And I think this is very typical of a lot of my colleagues that I see who are neurosurgeons or neuroscientists, and they don't um, necessarily have a, a solid framework for the the psychology piece and not really psychology, but exactly what the mind is. And so actually one of the biggest uh, scientific issues of the 21st century that has still not been able to be answered by scientists in terms of a solid way of measuring, right? Scientists want to be able to measure something tangibly to so that they can uh, describe it so that they can define it. And with the mind, there's not really still, even with all our technology, a really solid way to measure the mind and put your finger on it. Like what exactly is it? It's more of this esoteric thing that we know exists, but we don't exactly understand where it comes from. And so the biggest question that's left in this field um, that is starting to be looked at uh, from many different angles is how does the brain produce 
the mind. But the reason why we can't answer this question is because that's not exactly how it happens. The brain does not produce the mind, and the mind does not produce the brain. The two are actually separate entities that do impact and interact with each other. And so the way that I describe the mind, because we don't have a solid working definition in the scientific communities yet, I say yet because I hope to help to develop this um, in some way within my own work and my own research. But with the mind, it's more of this invisible construct. It is our, it is our set of beliefs. Um, it is our set of emotions to some extent, even though that also interacts with the nervous system and the brain as well. But it also has, it's kind of our... Um, our filter that paints our human experience based on like these beliefs and thoughts and emotions that we have. And the reason why we know this is not produced by the brain, however it is impacted by the brain and vice versa, is if you, one way to um, understand this is if you look at uh, near-death experiences, for instance, when somebody dies, technically, their brain is flatlined, their heart is flatlined, nothing is happening as far as electricity or chemical in the brain or in the, with the heart. However, these folks are still experiencing thoughts and emotions and um, having a a very significant mind experience. So this is just one small example of, um, of that, that illustrates how the brain does not necessarily produce the mind. But I agree with you, it is, the mind does play the role as a filter. And the brain is more like the um, antenna. It is the physical construct of the human operating system, which is what I like to call the brain and the mind together, the human operating system. Um, and the brain is more of that physical hard wiring. It transmits these messages that come from the mind into the body and give that physical, physiological experience. So again, this is something that nobody has a solid definition of, so um, it's not surprising that neither you or I really have a solid definition of what the mind is, um, but it is a very exciting aspect of our field of work. Yeah, definitely very interesting. Um, you know, I almost feel like I'd love to just keep asking you questions about this. And <laughs> there's so many elements of it that um, kind of verge into uh, philosophy and, and spirituality in, in some nice. cases. And um, when you were describing the kind of antenna concept of the brain, it made me wonder if the brain is just channeling the mind, where does the mind come from in the first place? If it's external to the brain, then it has to be somewhere or nowhere, I guess. But um, yeah, definitely one of those fascinating topics. Yeah, I, I love this field of work because it is esoteric, meaning that um, it's novel, right? We, we don't have these constructs to work from. We don't have these working definitions in terms of how to measure the mind. And so to me, that's what makes it even more exciting. And to your point, it really is, um, it is a, a huge question. Where does the mind where does it exist? Where does it lie? The reason why we can't put our finger on it is because we actually don't know where is the mind located? Is it in the brain? Is it in the body somewhere? Is it outside the body? Um, these are questions that we have yet to answer and potentially at some point the scientific community will be able to come up with a way to answer these questions. Um, but until then, it's more of just an exploration and it is very much theoretical at this point. So I would love to dive into all of the things that we talked about um, in the beginning, how to detox both your mind and your brain for overall health and performance. So can you tell us a little bit about the concept of, first of all, detoxing your mind um, and then detoxing your brain, that physical construct? Yeah. And, you know, I think you're, you're referencing here in part the uh, subtitle on the book. And 
let me just say as a general disclaimer, I am not a huge fan of the word detox. I know it's <laughs> used a lot. Um, there were reasons why that went on the cover that weren't all in alignment with maybe the words that I would use if I was doing it on my own. But the, the basic premise there is trying to look at the way that we make choices and trying to ask, why is it that despite having all of the things for most people that are necessary to be healthy and in many cases to be happy, we're still looking at rates of depression that have been elevating over the last several decades, especially in children. We're still looking at incredibly high rates of chronic, largely preventable diseases. Um, and trying to explain this from the level of the brain as far as what is happening in our brain that is causing us to make these unhealthy choices against our better judgment, what is causing us to engage in interactions that are largely superficial, um, causing us to pull back from the types of engagements with other people that contribute to better mental health. And then on the other hand, uh, what can we start doing to wire our brains um, for the opposite, for better health through better choices? And what we describe in the book is that there's a very basic formula here, which is the quality of your outputs reflect the quality of your inputs. So whatever it is that you're trying to get out of your life, if you're not putting in the right pieces and the recipe to get you there, your chances of getting there are pretty low. And we talk about what has happened in modern day as far as the quality of our inputs from things like food and things like uh, media, things like our interactions with other people, um, and then the kind of absence of the right types of inputs that allow us to think clearer. So the absence of nature exposure, the absence of these deep relationships, the absence of mindfulness. So that the word detox here really means both taking out the things that are caustic to our brains and then putting in the things that have been pretty consistently associated with better brain function. And, you know, there, there's so many levels at which you can describe this. We tried to talk about the more macro influences. So things like general dietary strategies that are associated with better brain function. We tried to talk about things like news exposure, which is a very stressful event and can kind of condition our brains towards worse function but there's definitely a lot of nuance to each of these things. And so the pathways that are involved in the brain that relate to decision-making, that relate to cognition, are really some of the same pathways that have been described um, by many people in the last decade or so that relate to things like inflammation, the immune system activation in the brain, that relate to things like neuroplasticity, but that also relate to activation states and kind of connectivity states between areas of the brain. So the, the goal with all of this is the very basic idea that if you're not getting out of your life what you want, if you're not making the type of choices that are bringing you closer to your goals, then it's not a question of blame. It's not a question of blaming yourself, blaming your lack of willpower. It's a question of curiosity as far as what is going on in your brain. And if you start with that curiosity, there's so much that you can do to kind of clean up your brain function and make it more likely that you're making those decisions, getting you closer to your goals. I love that holistic overview and understanding of the brain. And so I'm curious in your patient population, what are some of the things that you see most commonly that are areas that folks need to work on in terms of cleaning up their brain health or brain function? Yeah. So, um, you know, to be transparent, I have taken a break from seeing patients for a little bit to focus on these frameworks. But, um, you know, certainly I did a lot of clinical care leading up to this project. And I think that in addition to that, when you look at the literature, um, I really view the majority of our chronic health conditions today as a reflection of poor decision making. And again, I want to be clear, it's not like I'm blaming people for making those bad choices. I think this is the problem. It's you look at somebody with disordered metabolism, with uh, cardiovascular issues, with let's say their blood pressure, and you say, hey, what are you doing? You need to stop eating so many refined carbohydrates. You need to start exercising more. You need to take this seriously. Uh, and then, you know, they don't. And we say that is an issue of patient decision-making. 
It is something that I can write in my chart, which I've done so many times, the words non-compliant or non-adherent, which basically means the person knew what they were supposed to do and they didn't do it. And so I look at all of these instances as basically a failure in decision-making. Now, I wanna be clear about another thing here too, which is that as it relates to decision-making, there are words like good and bad, uh, good choices, bad choices. And so those are by their very nature subjective words. And I think there's a tendency for experts, especially in medicine, to use those types of subjective terms for decisions that patients make without understanding what's valuable to them. And so a mistake that I made a lot was to assume that what I thought was important was the same thing that was important to the patient. So if it was uh, you know, a guy coming in who I said, we really need to be working on your blood sugar because your A1C is nine, um, that I would assume that he cared just as much about that as I did. But what matters to the patient may be more like spending time with his grandkids, maybe the ability to go hiking. And so as it relates to what is a good or bad decision, what is it, I, what I perceive as a good decision for the patient isn't necessarily what he perceives as a good decision. So what we're really trying to focus on here is defining good decisions as those that are in alignment with your future goals. It's not the things that are bringing us instant gratification, but instead the things that are helping us to get towards the things we care about most. So whether that's improving your relationships, improving your financial stability, improving your general health, those things are kind of up to you. Now, you could argue some things are more reasonable than others if your goal is just to stockpile money for the next several decades. Um, maybe that's not what's best for humanity, but who am I to say what is best for you? So again, with all of this said, the goal with these types of decisions is just to better align what we're doing in the present moment with the things that we care about in the future. And when you start from that, I think it opens the door to really making an, uh, an alliance with patients or you know, with clients, if you're a coach, um, that enables you to be on the same team as far as the interventions you're making. I think it, it is time to change that strategy a little bit. And I just see when people are in alignment with the goal, then it really shifts towards a, a working relationship as opposed to this kind of paternalistic provider relationship where I'm just telling you, here is what you need to do. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's kind of like, if I think it's a good decision, that is completely irrelevant if you don't agree that it's a good decision because there's no way that if you don't agree it's a good decision, you are not going to act upon that decision, right? So I think it does have to come from the individual and they have to use their own discernment whether this is a good decision or a bad decision based on their own experience. And again, their own experience is also determined by you know, what, what we were alluding to before, the human operating system, the, the quality of the brain and the mind. So I'm, I'm curious, when you're guiding folks in this decision-making process, how do you help them to make better decisions? So even if they decide something, I guess my question is, how do you help them to act upon those decisions? Because, um, you know, even in public health, with all the recommendations that are out there, again, these are decisions that are being made for people, and that's why I left the public sector, because I don't agree with making decisions for the public about their health. I think people should be empowered to make their own health decisions. How do you help them to act upon those decisions? The action is the piece that I feel is missing a lot of the time. This is, it's a great question. Um, and I guess before I get to the specifics there, when you're bringing up this question of kind of public health, and again, these more paternalistic policies that are influencing people's health, I, I do think there has to be a mix there. I think that the problem is we have this belief in complete freedom of choice, of complete autonomy, and the way that things are set up in the environment now kind of precludes that from being possible. And so I am a proponent of things like behavioral economics and nudges that can help guide people towards healthier options. But I appreciate what you're saying as far as, you know, who are we to be making decisions for other people as it relates to their health? Um, at an individual level, there are several frameworks that I think are helpful in guiding people towards making better choices. But 
I think it does start with an interest in making better choices, right? As long as you're forcing people to do something, you're really never going to be all that effective. But let's say you're with somebody, that person says, I really want to be making better choices as it relates to my diet or exercising consistently or, uh, you know, having less heated conversations with my spouse that are very damaging to our relationship. These are all things that we look at perhaps as something we want to change. So there are a couple of things to consider there. You know, one is the more general process of how do you set your brain up for better decision making? And the other is trying to understand, like, uh, from a more psychological psychological perspective what's going on when we make certain choices and then how we can work backwards to find the solution so from a, a more general kind of setting up your brain perspective i think that you look at some variables that are involved in decision making so sleep is a great one sleep improves the quality of our decision making um, so does exercise so does uh, going into nature for even short periods of time and I think that for certain people who don't want to get into all the specifics of, you know, how do I understand my neurotransmitters? How do I understand my psychology? Just including an intervention like better sleep or nature exposure or some daily exercise and then kind of stacking it in such a way that you're going to get that, um, that brain health intervention uh, in a timeline that is going to set you up for making a better decision around the same time that you would have made the bad decision is a great first place to start. But for people who want to do a little bit more of a, a kind of uh, advanced, not really advanced, but who want to spend a little bit more time understanding what's going on, I think the best solution is to understand what happens at the moment of choice and then work your way backwards. So um, the, the thing that I try to explain to people is that at the moment of choice, much of your choice has already been determined. And this isn't the whole free will argument. This is basically saying that the state of your body and your brain at the moment of decision making is going to be massively influenced by what you've done in the last 24 hours. So, um, you know, the neurotransmitters, the, the hormones in your brain, the excitatory potential of your synapses, all of these things influence your decision making. So if you're assuming that the only thing that matters is how you feel at the moment of making a choice, you're missing out on most of the variables that will let you make better choices. So first have that understanding and then going more specific and saying, can you give me examples of the last instances in which you made choices that you feel are poor choices? Because there are some situations in which we say, oh, I really made a bad choice, but at the moment it was actually the right choice. It was a, a good choice given the data available. That's very different from bad choices. Like, you know, once again, I purchased something impulsively online, or once again, I spent four hours binge watching TV when I had planned to instead exercise. So then narrowing in on what that poor choice was, and then trying to go backwards from there and say, what happened in that 24 hour period leading up to the choice? And there are a lot of variables that you can explore. I mentioned already sleep, but diet is certainly a great variable. There's pretty interesting research showing that ghrelin, which is a hormone produced by the stomach, that ghrelin levels correlate with impulsivity. We know that ghrelin levels correlate with increased appetite. It's kind of what it does. It increases your appetite, it increases food consumption. But when you start to appreciate how that affects your decision-making, then you can say, what might've been happening with my ghrelin levels leading up to that decision, especially as it relates to food choices. And then there are a whole bunch of other variables that you can think about. So you can think about when did I last exercise? Research shows that our executive functions, which are uh, basically the set of abilities in the brain that let us make good choices, that executive functions are improved in the period after exercise. So if you think about had I been sedentary for the day leading up to that poor choice versus had I recently exercised, now that's another variable you can think about. Um, so those are just some examples, but the, the goal with all of this is again to bring that curiosity you know to say i made a bad choice my first step isn't blame it's curiosity it's exploration and then working backwards to say what are the potential variables that contributed to that um the next step after you start to isolate the things that might have contributed to that bad choice is to set up a protocol where you're you're changing those variables so this involves things like habit formation. It involves things like uh, maybe changing your sleep schedule. It involves things like maybe changing the timing of your diet, maybe uh, adopting a time-restricted eating strategy that has you having less kind of food cravings that can negatively influence your food choices. But 
I think that part does need to be personalized to the individual, depending on where and, uh, and how they're making those poor decisions and their ability to kind of change certain variables in their lives. So much great information there. And this is actually the perfect segue. I love that you mentioned curiosity. Um, as folks know who follow me uh, as bio-curious Kayla, I'm all about curiosity. And, you know, curiosity really is the foundation for science and medicine, really. So I do I do agree with you. It has to start with curiosity. Um, and then it's kind of an exploration and an expansion from there. The What I wanted to ask you about next is there are three systems that you describe that are involved intimately in programming both our brains and our bodies. And some of that you scratch the surface here, but can you tell us a little bit more about the involvement in the immune pathway, the gut, and the stress pathway in programming our brains and bodies and making better decisions? I said this before, but we tend to look at decision-making as a, a conscious choice made in a moment that we believe it is a reflection of our identity, of our, our free will, of our own autonomy. And the only thing standing between us and making better decisions is our willpower and the information available. And that is such a limited model of what actually goes into our choices. And so, you know, kind of coming back to our initial conversation about what is the mind, um, it does go into what is the self, what is identity? and the way that I look at this is the, these are not necessarily terms that can be easily described. And they're certainly not something that is static. We have this idea of an identity as something that is uh, consistent over time, that we are the same person today than will be tomorrow as far as our identity. Um, but those types of ideas of, you know, what is it that constitutes the self? Is it our patterns of decision-making, our emotional states, the things we care about? These things are changed over the course of our lives. And you can see a great example of this in people who experience things like dementia. Um, you know, they have differences in who they are. So their self seems to change. And, you know, you could argue that that is a, a disease state, but certainly we are not the same self that we were when we were four years old. We have different preferences. We are different people. And so I think once you open up the door to that and you appreciate that these concepts that we like to hold on to are not so solid as what we've been led to believe, then you can look at what are the things that make us who we are. And once you do that, you can understand how that will influence our decision-making because our decision-making is really an outgrowth of our, our personality traits, our, our brain wiring, um, the thing that we call a self. So we mentioned kind of three things here, immune pathways, stress pathways, and gut-based pathways. And each of these has kind of their own story, but they all definitely inter are intertwined as far as how they influence ourself and how they influence our decision-making. We know from both animal and human research that, uh, you know, even before we're born, the immune pathways in our moms are influencing our bodies, are influencing our brains. And certainly they are after the fact. I mean, there's great research to suggest that, you know, one of the benefits of breast milk is a transfer of uh, immunity from mom to baby. But immunity relates to the gut in many ways too. So we know that the microbiome we get from our moms, uh, which is different depending on the route of birth, uh, plays a role in kind of setting us up for our immune status early in life and sets us up as far as our general health because we know our microbes influence our general health. But that the immunity and the microbes that we're exposed to early on in life play a role in determining the shaping of our brains. It plays a role in the way that our neurons wire, plays a way in the way that our microglial cells, which are our brain's immune cells, uh, kind of get set up and get activated. And also play a role in the development of the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is kind of one of the core pathways involved in stress. Um, additionally, we know that uh, a mom's stress exposures, both before we're born and, and during uh, the birth process, as well as um, you know, the, the stress that we are exposed to as a result of our environment early in life, that all of these things influence our brain function. So we can get into more kind of molecular details as to how this happens. But what I think people need to appreciate is that, you know, what we call decision-making, what we call self 
incorporates information from all of these systems in the body. So one is the immune system, one is the endocrine system, of which I think the stress pathways are the most notable, and one is the kind of microbiome, um, gut microbiome system. And it's especially important early in life, but I think that these are still things that largely influence the way that we make choices well into adulthood and really throughout our lives, because we now understand that the immune state of our brains may bias us towards certain patterns of decision-making. We know that a more inflammatory state of the brain has long been associated with general cognition in a negative way, but that the inflammatory state of our brains in a more of a short-term fashion can still influence the way that we make choices. Um, and certainly that has a lot of overlap with things like depression, because we're increasingly recognizing that you can create symptoms of depression by giving somebody an inflammatory challenge, giving them an injection uh, or some other intervention that increases inflammation. So again, as I said, you know, these are, are very technical if you want to get into the details. But what I think people should appreciate is not like there's one system. Um, there's the brain system, the mind system. And that's somehow independent from what's going on in our immune system, our endocrine system, and what's happening in our gut. These things are all interrelated. And so, you know, in a, a really integrative, holistic plan to improve the quality of your decision making, you're having to look at all of these factors. If you're really trying to optimize your brain function. Oh, yeah. I could not agree with you more. I think a lot of times um, folks forget or have the misunderstanding that it's a unidirectional system, that it, basically the information comes from the brain and goes out into the body, but lesser known or understood or maybe just forgotten about a lot of times is that it's a bi-directional feedback system, whereas the body is just as important in sending messages back to the brain and the mind and the brain and the mind are sending messages the other way and it's all happening at the same time which is why the holistic view of medicine of health is so important and um, luckily I think we're seeing a big shift in the medical system to really start to incorporate this I hope so um, <laughs> I, I think there is a piece of it where it's like this is overwhelming um, you know yeah. everything influences everything and there's also a piece of it which is we don't know in a really concrete way how we can modulate this beyond just saying, you know, we don't want our children to be exposed to really high levels of stress. We don't want our, our moms to have, um, you know, exposure to terrible immune challenges before they give birth. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there is this tendency in the world of, let's say, integrative medicine to be opposed to conventional medicine because it doesn't take into account all these variables, but there is a very real sense of overwhelm when you say, oh, well, you know, the gut microbiome is the key to every disease. And then you say, okay, well, what does that mean as far as the recommendations I give my patient? And you have 800 different recommendations for different strains of bacteria, uh, for different types of prebiotics or symbiotics or whatever, uh, or other ways to modulate gut health, which largely haven't been proven as far as large-scale randomized trials in humans. Um, but for the average person, I think the real take-home message here is to move from exactly, as you said, this unidirectional concept of you have this top-down brain decides everything in the body to understanding that the way that you think, the way that you experience life is an integrated reflection of all of these different systems in the body. And that's why I tell people, you know, you can't just pursue one quality input and expect your outputs to be good. So you can't just take care of your food and then expect everything else to be good. Um, that your inputs that come in through your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, those things influence your brain function just as much as your food does. And you know, the other way around also, your brain function then influences what you're going to take in as far as uh, through your senses and through your, your mouth. So I think that opening that door and starting to say, wait a second, everything is interrelated and then finding the things that are most relevant to the individual that can help them to start achieving uh, more optimal health and cognitive and mental health function is the key. Wow, yes. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for describing that. And I think we could have a whole podcast just on that topic alone. Um, But I do want to ask you a couple of questions that I like to ask all of my podcast guests. Do you have a morning routine that sets you up for success for the day? And if so, what does that entail? Definitely. I I have a a pretty consistent morning routine. Um, So I wake up either usually the alarm clock is for 630. But lately, we've been trying six o'clock. And the first thing for me um, is to go downstairs and meditate for 20 minutes. And at that point, once that's done, um, I get to move into my favorite part of just about every day, which is the coffee preparation. Um, I I did mention that I do uh, time restricted eating. So I don't really eat breakfast for a while, but I will allow myself black coffee. Um, So I'll have my first cup of coffee in the morning. And then, you know, at at this point, um, most days, what I try to do is practice an instrument for a little while um, until about eight o'clock, at which point then I'll be, uh, I do read the news for about 10 minutes in the morning. I'll check my emails at that point. Um, And then, yeah, around eight o'clock is also when I'll, I'll start to do work. And I find I'm most productive for the first three hours in the morning. So that's when I try to do the stuff that is most important for the day. Um, I sometimes have meetings in the morning and then my first meal of the day is usually around 11 o'clock. So that gives me a pretty solid window between dinner and breakfast. You know, I think that's kind of the core of my morning. It's really not all that exciting when I described it, but I found that that's what works best for me. When possible, I live out in Portland, Oregon, um, try to get some sun exposure into my eyes to help set myself up for uh, the right circadian rhythm for the day. But that's not always as easy as I'd like it to be, especially in the winter. I think, you know, morning routines don't necessarily have to be exciting, whereas I've seen folks who have very, very elaborate, you know, two, three, four hour morning routines. Um, But pretty much everybody has some of the same components that you described. Um, But one thing I loved about your morning routine is that you include this little aspect of creativity and creative thinking, which does use different areas of the brain than, um, say, research. So I love that you incorporate that in and and, um, enhance those neural pathways for yourself. So... I have just one last question for you, um, which can sometimes be a little bit of a hard one. So if you need to have a a quick think on it, go ahead. Can I phone a friend? (laughs) Yeah, phone a friend. Um, If the listeners could make just one simple change in their lives to improve their overall health and well-being, what would you recommend that be? It's such a good question. I think for most people, the single most important intervention for health Uh, that they can make is to improve the quality of their sleep. Because unlike most things that I recommend people do to improve their brain health, you can see the benefits uh, or the downsides of one night of good or bad sleep. And so the, I think, most effective way to set yourself up for a day of good cognition, good decisions, is to give yourself that seven to eight hour window of sleep. Now, there's a lot that can be said about the quality of sleep once you get into bed. And I think Many people, especially middle-aged and overweight men, should look into getting a sleep study because obstructive sleep apnea is a huge deal. But then the other piece I would say, which is, I guess, a little bit more general, is the infusion of mindfulness. And that can be as simple as just paying attention to your breath. Um, I'm certainly not an expert in meditation and mindfulness, but I will say that I think the biggest issue in the modern day as it relates to um, how we act is that we're spending most of our time in a mindless state. So whether that's social media consumption or eating mindlessly, whatever it might be, we're just not paying attention to what we're actually doing. And so mindfulness, it creates a space between the impulse and the action. And, you know, it can take a little while before it becomes something that you can see a benefit from. But even in the short run, it at least exposes you to how, kind of frenetic our thought process is and how impulsive so many of our actions are. So even just a couple of moments of applied mindfulness in the course of a day, I think, opens the door to an understanding of how distorted our thinking really is and how mindless most of our actions are. I love both of those. And both of those are actually part of two of my very, um, most favorite recommendations and biohacks for both the brain and the mind. So 
thank you for sharing those. Um, Austin, where can the listeners find more about your work? Where's the best place for them to connect with you? You know, if you want to learn more about the lifestyle factors involved in decision making, I do think that the book Brainwash um, is is currently the best source of that information. Uh, if you're interested in more of the kind of philosophical, psychological pieces of this and deeper dives into some of these systems, like what we talked about related to immune health, stress pathways, gut health, and cognition, I recommend you check out my podcast. It's called Get This Stuck Out, and you can find that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, and then if you want to just more generally connect with me, I think my Instagram is probably the best place to go. And so you can click on my profile and see the link in my clubhouse profile, or it's at Austin Perlmutter on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much. And just another nudge, if folks have any questions for Dr. Perlmutter, go ahead and raise your hand and I will call you up. So first person we have is Victor. Hi. Uh, my question is, what's the best way to teach the unconscious mind how to learn is there tricks that you have in terms of uh, helping the brain facilitate the unconscious mind learning victor this is a great question and thanks for coming up um what i would tell people about this is kind of similar to the whole concept of the mind the idea of the unconscious can be variably described but as it relates to decision making my belief is that the unconscious variables play a massive role in what we perceive as conscious decision-making. The best way for, I believe, most people to leverage that information is through the research on habit formation, because habits are, by their definition, an automatic, unconscious process that determines what we do. And research has shown that habits make up about 40% of our daily actions, or I should say habitual actions, meaning these unconscious actions uh, make up about 40% of our daily actions. And I think there's a whole lot, as I said, of unconscious influence on what we would call conscious decision-making. But for most people, I think what makes the most sense is to try to align your unconscious thinking with your conscious thinking by way of improving the quality of your habits. And this is kind of a, an entirely separate topic, um, but... You know, there are a lot of great habit experts, both on Clubhouse and off. One that I appreciate is BJ Fogg. He wrote a book called Tiny Habits, which I think makes this very accessible. Uh, there's a researcher named Wendy Wood who wrote a book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, which is also great. And then there's some of the more famous habit books like The Power of Habit and Atomic Habits um, that also create frameworks around this. But uh, I think the key here is to understand that Habits are not necessarily what people think they are, that the brain creates habits in a very specific way. And once you understand how that happens, you're all of a sudden in a position to start, you know, getting some of that 40% of your daily actions on your side. So again, it's, it's a great question. And um, I think that habit formation is one of the most underutilized ways of improving behavior. But there's also a lot of kind of pop psychology around habit formation and what actually works is pretty well substantiated, but going to the source of one of these kind of habit experts is what I would recommend. Thank you both. Thank you, Victor. And thank you, Austin, um, for answering that question. Our next guest is Lauren. Thank you so much. Um, my question is, is for both of you, actually. And it is, how can um, translators to the science help and support people like yourself, the doctors, the neuroscientists, the researchers, the academics? How can we help and engage to get all of your wonderful research more effectively out to the population? So I think even just in your willingness to be that translator, the scientific translator from something that is very maybe complex or even just hard to grasp for the general audience and translating that in a way that can be digestible in little tidbits is so important and we don't even have enough people doing that. So the more people we can get to do that, the better. So thank you for offering this and thank you for that question. Lauren, I love this question. And let me just say, we're all translators. 
you know, I, I think that there's this artificial distinction between what makes a quote expert and what makes a non-medical person. And, you know, I think all of us are, are doing our best to communicate the right information to other people. And some of us have uh, more years of education and certain things that may, may or may not actually make us better at converting that information into data that helps the average person. So I really, I think the key to this is having a strong basis in like, you know, what does the evidence actually say is consistently associated with positive health outcomes? And it's something that I've been working on a lot in the last couple of years. Um, there's so much conditioning that comes from uh, where we grew up, who we spent time with, the education that we were given that doesn't necessarily allow us to be curious about what is actually helpful to people. And what is actually helpful to people isn't just pure science. You know, there's this overlap here as to what is true and then what is useful. And those are not always the same thing. So there's tons of science out there that is, quote, true, but has no practical value to the average person. Um, and similarly, I could sit here and explain the mechanisms of the glymphatic system, you know, uh, as far as brain function and why people need to prioritize sleep. But that may not be all that beneficial to the average person. So what I look at is the keys uh, to, to health behavior change. Um, but I think for, for many people, for most people, the goal is to try to find some things like, again, sleep, exercise, food, eating a generally balanced diet, and then finding ways to take science around that and give it to people that makes it meaningful to them. Um, the last thing I'll just say on this is uh, I feel personally, uh, you know, a tendency to not necessarily be fully confident in why should I be out there talking about this, that, or the other thing, even when I've spent years reviewing it, you know, even when I've basically reviewed the majority of the, the current science on a topic, and then I say, you know, who am I to put this out there? And what fuels me to keep doing it? is to understand that so much of what is out in the, the world of advice is, is kind of biased and not really helpful. And so I think, you know, when, when people are capable of, of trying to bring um, kind of an open-minded, curious, but also scientific-based, meaning that you're not extrapolating hugely, um, approach to translating information. I think that's super, super valuable, regardless of a person's level of, you know, the traditional medical education. So I, I want to just echo what Kayla's saying, and I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's a tough thing to, um, to sometimes sustain because you ask yourself, who am I to be doing this stuff? But as long as you're preaching the good stuff, you know, I, I start to get concerned when people pick a certain supplement or a certain really intense intervention and say, this is the solution to everything. But, um, you know, more generally, I don't think there can be enough people out there promoting the basics for health. Thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, so we'll have one more question from Jonathan. Welcome up to the stage. Thanks, Kayla. Um, I'm, I mostly have a comment to say that this room has been amazing. Uh, I'm here in the middle of my cardiology clinic day, and I only wish that Kayla, you, and Austin were here with me because I'd say at least 60 to 70 percent of my patients are, are not needing more medicines, and they're not needing more tests. They're needing common sense, and they're needing um, some basic, uh, effectively communicated science on how to modify behavior. And what I'm hoping is we can find ways to team up and to partner, we as doctors, to bring people in to integrate our care. So often doctors say, well, I don't have time to go over the behavioral issue, but you know, stress and eating and sleep and all these wonderful things that Austin is communicating so powerfully, um, either doctors either will say that they don't have the time or frankly, they don't have the, the skills to communicate in very clear lay terms uh, and to prioritize. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we can maybe nudge the healthcare system, the traditional system where we wait until things are broken. Um, we have certain payment models which don't celebrate prevention and common sense often. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, either Kayla or Austin. And I just want to say thank you. I'm inspired, uh, Austin, by 
how clearly you think and um, how you're sort of fighting against disinformation as well. Jonathan, thank you so much. Um, I mean, thank you for what you're doing in this very moment too. Uh, obviously, heart disease is kind of the biggest issue as far as health problems. And it makes me so happy to know that you're thinking about these things while you're in the clinic, even though it might be disheartening. When I was doing my residency in the VA, I did a quality improvement project and I was, um, I was at the time, you know, super jazzed on how we could prevent diseases if patients just knew the basics. And so I made all these handouts for heart disease, for diabetes, for weight, whatever, and just tried to tell them, you know, here are some of the, the basic preventive strategies. And the VA wouldn't let me put them out. Um, they said it has to be vetted in all these ways. And because of that, we continued to give patients the handouts that had been created decades prior. And I am not kidding when I say that our handout for heart disease was recommending that patients include more opossums in their diet. And yes, you heard me right. <laughs> oh, no. the, the mammal, the uh, marsupial, I should say, opossums. And it was saying, you know, it was still very much fats are the dead, or it will kill your heart. And so here are some animals that are lower in saturated fat, the possum <laughs> being one of them. But I give this as an example of, you know, we are all limited uh, in the time we have when we work with patients. And so handouts and having this information readily available, super important, but those are only as good as what's contained within them. And I think that even when we're able to put together handouts, information that are evidence-based, that are talking about the strategies for healthier diet, for general disease prevention, that's not the information patients need. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, but, um, you know, I think it's more a question of aligning values with the patient and then finding ways to improve the quality of decisions around that. And so, you know, again, I mentioned this before, but I think at the very basic level, if you can agree with a patient as far as what they care about, and you can agree on at least one type of decision that you both in alignment would be something that they would enjoy doing differently and that you think would be good for their health. Then it's just looking at whatever the biggest variables are that can potentially improve the quality of that choice. So whether that's sleep, whether that's getting less news exposure, whether that's putting a plant in the house to lower levels of stress, it doesn't really matter. The key thing is getting the brain to a place where it can more consistently make good decisions because that then provides, here's the kind of crazy philosophical piece of it. So much of what we're talking about here is also insight dependent. And insight, the ability to really think through things, is dependent on activation of the prefrontal cortex. So when you're able to get on board one lifestyle intervention that improves the function of the prefrontal cortex, you can then look at the possibility of this feed forward cycle where quality of decisions across the board are improved. And so instead of saying, you have to eat this food because it is the solution to your diabetes. So let's say you're trying to tell them not to drink soda because that's the solution to lowering their blood sugar maybe the solution there isn't to focus on the decision around the soda, so to speak, as far as telling them not to drink it. It's to ask, what can we do to activate the parts of the brain that will give you the ability to make the right types of choices when you get to that soda? In addition to what was mentioned before by Victor with the unconscious piece, which is what are the habits, what are the kind of context-dependent cues that are triggering the consumption of the soda? So there's just a couple of ideas there, but Jonathan, I'd love to connect with you afterwards too, to discuss maybe what we might be able to, to work on together. Yeah, I would, I would really love that, Austin, and um, I'm very passionate about this. I think we have a lot of uh, not only wasted time and resources, but financial waste in our healthcare system, uh, which would go away if we really acknowledge the importance of behavioral health and behavioral change. And that really starts with teaching in medical school the basics of human motivation, motivation theory, emotional intelligence, and sort of habit change, uh, which we are not taught. And the investment on that would go a long way. Uh, I'm definitely up for talking with you and um, exploring. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I echo uh, what Austin was saying. Jonathan, thank you so much for this important question and your important work. And I would also love to connect with you on this topic. Um, it is something that is very near and dear to my heart. As when I was uh, with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, for a couple of years, I actually worked on what is called the Global Hearts Initiative. And that was creating standardized protocols protocols for cardiovascular disease 
for countries with limited resources. And I was involved in pulling together the research and helping with the experts in the field to create these protocols. And my frustration was that um, this education piece that you both mentioned and um, some of these support pieces that really go back to the basics were not included in these protocols whatsoever. Um, you know, it was more about a statin <laughs> um, as the frontline intervention that is recommended for everyone and then how to get those statins in the quantities that are needed for the folks who are suffering from cardiovascular disease in these um, limited resource countries. So I agree completely with, with what both of you said and I think our healthcare system will be changed by changing societal constructs that we follow. And I do think that that goes back to education. And I would even argue education starting at the elementary level. So while a lot of these changes can happen for the adults who may be at risk for cardiovascular disease, for instance, that is really powerful in a way for the children as well, because then those parents who are teaching and programming these children can teach the children these healthier practices. But also, if this is being solidified and reinforced in our school system, I agree. I think that this in, um, investment would go such a long way. Kayla, I'd just like to add one thing to that, because I totally agree with what you're saying. And, you know, to the point of, let's say, statins, let's take that one step further. Um, when there's an intervention that causes an immediate outcome, it doesn't require necessarily decision making on the part of the patient. Like, those are the things that are potentially gratifying, right? It's, I have a lot of friends that are interested in intensive care. One of my friends is an intensivist, and you push epinephrine on somebody in the ICU, you're going to see a, a change in their physiology. You don't need to you know, worry about how they make decisions. That's going to happen. What's so hard, uh, especially in primary care, is that the results can take years. And even if you do everything right, it's just the absence of an outcome. And so that's not necessarily all that you know, motivating for people. So it really does have to to, I think, get to earlier on in life as far as like how a person makes decisions and how you align what is uh, what they care about with what they're doing in the present. Because the other piece of this is, um, you know, just like, let's say atherosclerosis or coronary plaque staying on the cardiovascular piece. Um, it's not like, you know, they come in and the, the coronary plaque just showed up yesterday. It's been building for a while. And similarly, the way that people make choices has been building for a long time. And this gets back to the earlier point about how the immune system, the gut stress pathways influence our brains prior to our birth. And so trying to uh, teach people, um, I mean, here's kind of one of my pieces is the way that people are taught to make decisions, the way that people are taught to value certain things in school and early life is really not in sync with what is most optimal for health. The stuff we're educating our kids about, um, you know, like teach people calculus. I had to take calculus when I was in high school. How many times have I used calculus in my life? like basically zero times, except for to tell people that I had to learn calculus. And on the other hand, where is our education in habit formation? Where's our education in mindfulness? Where's our education in decision-making? Where's our education in basic investing so you know not to put all your money in GameStop? I mean, these are the things that people need to know. And yet we focus our attention on the quote science, I shouldn't say quote, basically the science, the, the physics, the math, because that's hard science. And it gets back to the earlier point about there are things that are true and there are things that are useful. And so much of that is true, but not useful, right? Like it's great to know how to calculate the angle of a parabola or whatever. That's a true thing that you can do it, but it isn't useful to our health. So I think it really is trying to understand what are those things that are going to have the most compounding interest over time when educating the, the young people um, but also that are in sync with what they are going to care about. It's just like patients. You can't assume that you're going to take a 16-year-old impulsive kid and tell them they need to eat vegetables every day and assume that they're going to care about it because they understand it's important to their brain health, right? I can't tell them this is going to activate your NRF2 pathway. Therefore, it's really good for you. Chances are they're going to be more concerned about eating the Doritos and playing video games. 
So it is all about aligning those interests with the things that they care about, even at a younger age. But yeah, you know, that was kind of a, a longer rant about this. I just so much agree with you, Kayla, that at some point we have to look at how we're conditioning our brains at a younger age and to ask ourselves, is the information, that precious information, precious time that we're spending with them really what's going to best set them up for success as it relates to their health and happiness outcomes later in life? Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that and elaborating on that point. Um, I don't think it can be stressed enough. We are recording the BioCurious podcast live here on Clubhouse from ear, here out. So if you check out the events I have, they are all pretty much podcast recordings. And I would love to have you join the next one. And Austin, just thank you so much for coming on today, taking the time to share your knowledge with us. It is so valuable not only just for me, but for our audience as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm just constantly inspired by getting to interact with people like you and, you know, people like Jonathan, who we're just trying to to improve quality of health and looking at some different stuff. And um, I think there there's a strong tendency for people in scientific circles to get fixated on certain variables and to somehow believe that if they care about it enough, if they talk about it enough, that therefore the, the general public will see that and will start incorporating that. And I don't think that that happens a lot of the time. Instead, what people pick up is the sensationalized stuff, right? You have to do this crazy diet or take this crazy supplement. And so what I love about Clubhouse and what I love about this conversation, Kayla, is that we had an opportunity to talk about some of the, the kind of uh, wiring in the brain that sets the stage for all of these things. And I'm just continuously excited to see people's interest in these topics because as much as it's exciting to talk about, you know, that miracle drug or miracle supplement or miracle exercise protocol or diet, um, I think this is the conversation we have to be having, which is how do we decide what it is that is valuable to us? How do we decide how to align our actions today with what's going to be valuable to us in the future? And how do we get curious about the way that our brain is involved in all of these things? Once we do that, it opens up a world of possibilities, but it requires us to move beyond sensationalized messages and to really get to the core of, you know, what makes us who we are. So again, super grateful for this conversation, for this opportunity to connect with everybody in the room. And I look forward to continuing these, these conversations in the very near future. Mm, thank you so much. And um, Austin's podcast is also another great resource for expansive and open conversations like this that I, I do agree with you. I think this is the way we shift society and this is the way we shift health outcomes. So thank you again. And thank you for everyone who joined live. Until next time, we will see you later. Stay healthy. I hope you liked this week's episode of the BioCurious podcast. If you enjoy listening and learn something, please leave us a review and share it with someone that could benefit. If you don't already, follow our Instagram at BioCuriousPodcast for teasers of new episodes, advice from old guests, biohacking quizzes, and if you tag this account with a screenshot of the episode, we will feature you on our story. Thank you for all the support and have a good day.